to read once again verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made, and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Amen. Father God, we lift up this word before you, thanking you for it and praying that our lives would be brought into conformity to it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last week I described uh, one of the times that uh, I had been taken in by a sales ploy big time and I asked for a show of hands of how many people had had a similar experience and I was astonished and delighted to find out this congregation has already developed incredible sales resistance and so uh, it, it saved me a lot of work. I knew I was not going to have to preach uh, any of the rest of this series uh, uh, this day. Uh, maybe I, I thought maybe I'd preach today on ontology and prevarication and uh, be done with the rest because you guys already know it but interesting thing happened after dinner on Sunday I had one confession after another of people who said I should have raised my hands there and the fact I had so many confessions I was beginning to wonder if this is a Roman Catholic confessional you know as our <laughs> at our house but um, anyway uh, it, it was actually good to hear some of the different stories people had not just of ways they'd been taken in but of some of the ways in which they've been successful in resisting high pressure uh, salespeople, and I think it's good for the body to share back and forth. Uh, after all, it was experience, that lack of experience, that made Eve fall. And so when we can share our experiences, learn from each other's mistakes, I think it's a great thing. So anyway, we're back to talking about developing sales resistance. Um, and um, we pointed out that Satan is masterful at using these advertising techniques. And... Uh, uh, I pointed out these techniques are not just used by business, they're used by everything from politicians who are trying to convince you that their way is the best way to do it, uh, to your children fighting and trying to present their case to mom and dad. Uh, th this is something that uh, goes across the board. Now, I'm primarily applying it to business because that, that's the nature of the series that we're going through, but I think you can see as we go point by point these are fabulous principles to, to understand so that we can avoid falling into the temptations of sin as well. But uh, Eve, though perfect, did not have experience. That was her weakness. She was susceptible to this powerful advertising. By the way, the reason I picked Genesis 3 rather than Proverbs 7 or several other passages I could have gone through is because I think this one highlights better than any other passage that it's not just our fallen nature that makes us succumb to advertising. She didn't have a fallen nature. 
It's a part of our creaturehood. If you're not God, it's guaranteed you're going to have some weaknesses that can be taken uh, advantage of. And I thought this brought it much more into stark relief that that was the case. And so my point is, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't be looking at these principles and say, yeah, this is good for so-and-so and not be applying it to yourself. These are principles across the board that we need to, to learn. And uh, with Eve, shoot, I mean, if she was taken in, think about us. The only weaknesses that she had was kind of naivete, lack of experience. We've got a sin nature. We've got aging process. We've got fear of poverty sometimes. Um, we have in-laws. Sometimes we've got wretched bosses. We've got all kinds, a hundred different weaknesses that Eve did not have that Satan can take advantage of. So we need to take these tactics seriously. The other thing I want to preface with is that we should not just assume that these tactics uh, can only be used for good. I think they can be used, I mean, for bad. They can be used for good as well. And uh, I may point out a few different ways in which they can be used for good. That's not my emphasis in this sermon uh, uh, series here. I'm wanting to help you guys, when you make purchases, to be making them for the right reasons, not be governed by emotion or desire, but uh, governed by your reason. But uh, the New Testament uh, uses a number of these different tactics that are here. Tactic number one, association. While it's true that Satan arouses something very illegitimate he arouses lust and that free-floating emotion he wants to tie with his product he wants these people to uh, associate the truth the, the, the two i think we can use the principle of association in a very powerful way i mean just if you're a businessman and you're out on the hot beach and you're wanting to sell some uh, soda pop <coughs> uh, it's perfectly appropriate to put up a billboard, you know, with a picture of a soda pop can, you know, emerging from the ice with all of the condensation on it and everything portraying coolness and refreshingness. What you're doing is you're appealing to a desire that's already there, thirst, and in this case, a very legitimate desire, and you're associating it with your product. Your product can satisfy what's over there. In fact, if you look at the gospel and the way it is portrayed in the New Testament, you will find uh, over and over again, Christ ties the gospel together uh, with, um, uh, with blessings. In fact, Romans 11 um, says that God wants the nations to become jealous of the gospel, right? Now, how does that work? The jealousy of the gospel comes because the nations see all of the incredible blessings uh, that flow out of the gospel. They see the gospel here. It's associated with blessing. They want it, okay? So it's not inappropriate to use, uh, uh, but we should not do it the way that, that Satan did here. Uh, for example, undermining authority, bypassing parents and uh, marketing the product, that's tactic number two. And you could probably think of ways even tactic number two could be used in a good way. Uh, for example, uh, even though this is hateful, a hateful tactic to us in our covenantalism, think of a, a government. You're the head of state of a government, and you're fighting against another uh, government, a tyrant, you know, a petty tyrant who has attacked you, you're not going to ask that petty tyrant to have permission to talk to the people who are under his authority. You, you might fly a plane over his territory, distributing tracts, you know, letting them fall out of the plane. They did this in Africa all the time, propaganda being spread by airplanes. You'd see these tracts, just millions of tracts falling out of the sky. Anyway, the people would pick these up, and uh, it would be propaganda to undermine the dictator. And I think that's a perfectly appropriate way of doing that. But ordinarily, we ought not to use tactic um, two. Churches sometimes use this. 
I think in Sunday school, sometimes in an ungodly way, churches are undermining the authority of parents. But what I want you to do, I'm not going to give all of the applications could possibly make. I want you to think of these principles, and I want you to apply them to the situations that you're in. Now, if you'd put up the overheads, uh, John, uh, starting with overhead uh, number one, let's just very quickly go through what we've seen so far. Tactic one is the issue of association. Satan associates his product with beauty and wisdom. That mentions the wisdom or the cunning here in verse 1. But Ezekiel 28, 12 through 13, God says that in Eden, he presented himself as the wisest and the most beautiful of creatures. Now, if he had come with leathery wings, you know, and a curled lip and horns and a pitchfork, you know, it wouldn't have been a very good association. So, um, important principle. Tactic 2, seen in the second sentence there, and he said to the woman, seeking to undermine authority or directly appealing to subordinates. Tactic three is to hurry the spending decision so that you don't talk it over with anyone else until after the purchase is made. And that's exactly what happens with Eve. She doesn't talk it over with Adam until verse six after she's already made the decision. So talking it over with those who it will impact. Tactic four is to put the competition in the worst possible light to put your own proposal your own product in the best possible light Uh, god has said in chapter 2 verse 16 of every tree of the garden you may freely eat except for one okay generosity is communicated in those words what satan does he rewords that in um, uh, uh, chapter 3 in verse 1 he says as god indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden it's technically accurate but the connotation communicates almost the opposite of what God had said and use the techniques we we gave to resist that tactic five is to pit one generation against the previous generation and place doubts about established wisdom now again that's not always wrong but in this case it was wrong because God was the previous generation and God was the one who would establish the wisdom of those rules a tactic six is to engage people in conversation even when they don't want to be engaged in conversation and the reason for that is they want to discover where is the weak point that we can exploit. And we're going to be looking in a minute at the weak point uh, that he immediately finds out uh, with Eve a little bit later on. But when you're buying, uh, control the conversation. You're the one that needs to be in control, not the, not the other person. And if you don't want to buy, don't engage in conversation. Rudeness does not, you know, deserves to be ignored. Hang up, walk on. Uh, uh, don't let your niceness get you into buying something. I've seen... Some people, they are constantly buying things they don't want, and they feel bad about it afterwards, but it's because they're so nice. (laughs) They just have a hard time saying no. And uh, anyway, I should point out, Eve may have thought she was in control of the conversation. After all, she's the one that's talking in verses 2 through 3, right? That's a big mistake. He's baited her into conversation. Uh, He's got her to be talking about just what he wants her to talk about. Seventh tactic is to reject or to minimize warnings or things that might be distasteful to the potential customer. Okay? Uh, They'll do it in different ways. We looked at the masterful way that the harlot of Proverbs 7 is selling her wares and minimizes the danger. Sometimes it's with small print, so much small print that you're intimidated in reading it. And we pointed out if there's three pages of small print, there's a reason for it. You probably ought to read the, uh, the small print or just say, let me take this home. I'll sign it later. You know, they're always pressing, ah, it's okay, standard. Just, just sign it, it's standard. Eighth and last tactic that we looked at last week was to make fantastic claims that people wish were true. And that's 
the uh, important caveat. People want them to be true. They wish them to be true. And therefore, if they are boldly and confidently enough stated, people, there will be people who will buy them. And of course, Satan makes the bold claim here, you will not surely die. Marketers of cancer cures and debt cures and political cures are constantly making bold statements and people are constantly buying those bold statements even though there's really nothing behind them. Why? Because they want to believe it. They wish it were true. Now let's go on to the next sheet. Tactic 9, and that's where we're picking up today. Tactic 9 builds on tactic 6. And remember we said that tactic 6 is trying to engage the person in conversation, trying to find out where is this person's uh, weak point. And uh, I just finished saying, if you're not God, you have weak points. There's going to be something. You open your lips long enough in front of a salesperson, it, you can bet your bottom dollar he's going to find the weak points that he's going to try to exploit. At least if he's skilled, uh, he will be able to do that. Now, what's the weak point in Eve's conversation? Uh, let's read her whole conversation, verses 2 through 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, what's the weak point in her conversation there? Weak point is she's ignorant. She's saying something that she doesn't really know, even though she's quite confident in the way in which she's saying it. You might think, now, wait a shake. She, she's saying exactly what God said. How could she be ignorant? But take a look at chapter 2, verse 17. She adds some words there that are not in what God's speech. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And uh, she adds the words, uh, Nor shall you touch it. Okay, nor shall you touch it. And so whether it's Adam who misinformed her that couldn't touch the tree or whether she's added that because of wanting to have extra caution, we're not told why. But I tell you, if you come confidently to a salesperson and you start showing your ignorance, the dollar signs start appearing in his eye, uh, eyeballs. Just take an example of computers. You're a salesperson and a person comes walking in and uh, he points to a monitor and he asks, well, how much memory does this computer have? And you think, well, this guy doesn't seem to understand the difference between a monitor and a computer. And you ask a couple follow-up questions and sure enough, he doesn't know the difference between uh, hard drive memory and ROM and RAM. And uh, so you're able immediately to take control of the conversation, even if you don't know a whole lot about computers. And let me tell you, in my experience, uh, most computer salesmen uh, don't know a whole lot more than the doorpost about uh, computers. Uh, they just are confident in the things that they say. I have met some very knowledgeable computer salespeople, but uh, that's getting me way off track of what I was going to uh, talk about. Uh, anyway, Everything you say as a, as a computer salesman is going to be equally bewildering and dazzling. You're the expert. You're in control of the situation. And that's what Satan does here. He immediately takes control of what, um, of what is happening. Now, how do you develop re sales resistance to this situation? I only know of two ways that you can develop sales resistance. Uh, the first way is to gain knowledge in the area, at least enough knowledge so that you can talk intelligently with the salesperson, 
or if you do not intend to gain knowledge in that area, and there are some areas I have no intention of gaining knowledge in them because the ROI, the return on investment of time that you've put there is just not worth it, what you need to do is you need to get advice from somebody who is an expert. You need to either hire him or you need to ask a person you trust to buy it for you or tell you what you ought to buy. So those are the only two ways I know. Either you gain the knowledge or you trust somebody else who has it. Tactic 10 is redefining terms so that they will be misinterpreted. And this is a form of deception even while it is completely telling the truth. Uh, he says in verse 4, uh, you will not surely die. Now, is that true? Well, it all depends on how you define the word die. What's your definition? Now, take a look at chapter 2, verse 17. It says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Did Adam and Eve die in the day in which they ate of the fruit? Well, it depends on how you define the term die. Uh, if you defi define it just in terms of your physical body's separation from its soul, which, by the way, is the least significant definition of death in the Bible that there is of, uh, of the two, then no, he did not die. You can say, well, he started to die. There's maybe a deterioration of his body from that point on. But the fact is, he did not die on that day. But if you, if you have the most significant, theologically significant definition in the Bible of death, which is separation from God, both body and spirit, then he did die on that day. And he felt that death both in his body as well as, as, as in his spirit. In his spirit, immediately it was fear. He was hiding from God. He felt that distance. And in his body, what did he notice? Nakedness. He hadn't noticed it that, be, that before. He had lost the, the glory of the Lord which had clothed him. And so there was this death, this separation of his body and his spirit from the Lord. And so in that sense, uh, he did die on that day. But the point that I'm making here is that we need to be aware of ambiguity of many, many words and phrases uh, in language. Too many times I think Christians are utterly naive to this and they immediately jump to, uh, to a conclusion as a result. I've got a Christian catalog in my office that uses this tactic masterfully. And I could give you all kinds of examples, but let me just give you one. And that's the term class. And then I'll give you a phrase as an example. Uh, on one machine it says, it's the quietest board in its class. Now that sounds great, but what exactly does class mean? Now, in this catalog, the word class, does it mean that um, in the price range, this is the quietest board? Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Because uh, the, the word class could at one time mean the same price range of a few dollars. Another time it could mean uh, machines that have similar features. Or it could be machines offered by the same manufacturer. Or... It could even mean that it's the quietest within a group of boards that are just as quiet. Uh, Keith Kelsey uh, told me last week that salespeople are taught that it's perfectly okay to say that uh, this is the best product if there's a whole bunch of products that are equal, equal in terms of their technical specifications if there's nothing that's better. They're all best, right? And so there's so many ways in which you could interpret that. In your opinion, you know, it could be, it could be the best. And uh, the point is, uh, different meanings can be attributed to words and phrases. The same catalog says about another product that uh, this brings, here's the quote, brings depth 
and clarity to your worship service unlike anything you've ever heard before. Now, if you examine that phrase, it's meaningless, absolutely meaningless. Why? Because you could say it about absolutely any product that is out there if it's not been in your church. If it's the comp competition of what you've got in your church, uh, it's unlike anything you've ever heard before. You've only heard this product. And it doesn't matter if this one's poorer than your product. This one's unlike anything you've ever heard before. You see the ambiguities in, in language, and yet you think, boy, this is great. You know, I've got to have this product. So that's the tactic. How do we develop sales resistance to it? Well, first of all, ask questions. Uh, we've pointed out uh, Eve shouldn't have been talking to this guy, this salesperson in the first place, but let's just assume it was okay to talk with him. She could have said, well, that's interesting. What evidence do you have for that claim? Or what specifically do you mean by that claim? Uh, with the web, we have got so many resources to check out the claims of people. You've got uh, product comparisons, five different products within the price range, and every feature of that machine compared to every other feature. I mean, there's no reason that we have to be uh, ignorant about things that we are purchasing. Uh, there's consumer reports. There's Better Business Bureau reports. There's all kinds of ways in which we can check claims. So do the research. Ask questions. Secondly, learn to be cautious about any claims that are made. I found Christian catalogs use these kinds of ambiguities just as much as uh, the secular ones do. Well, I, there are some exceptions. You know, there's some that just the product sells itself practically. But uh, uh, just because a guy is holding a Bible together with his uh, product that he is selling does not mean his magazine is as truthful as the, as the product. Um, it, it just seems to come naturally. I should point out, maybe I shouldn't say this on the tape, but I mean, even Gary North, you know, when he sells his books, it's always the best book that's ever been written on the subject, and it's never going to be surpassed. You know, I mean, you, you read his advertising, and it's like, I've got to have this. And you read it and say, well, it was good, but it sure wasn't as good as the advertising made it out to be. But we, we've got to be aware. This is just part and parcel of the way business works and realize ambiguities. The third thing is we've got to analyze words. And I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to, to, uh, to, to learn this. Learn to analyze words. Whether it's a politician who's making claims, whether it's a pastor who is making claims, learn to analyze the words that are given. I just was reading this past week a, a critique of the Prayer of Jabez uh, uh, book uh, by a guy at Westminster, and I noticed some of the same features as this coming up in this critique. Very, very, very interesting. Of course, you find the same features in the, in the book, The Prayer of Jabez. But be a student of words. There are a variety of meanings. In fact, recently, that was brought to the attention of America, I think very powerfully, uh, in the issue of politicians engaged in fornication. Uh, the most recent, uh, how do you define contact? You know, did you have contact with her? And with President Clinton is, how do you define is? Now, a lot of Christians say, well, that's ridiculous. Is means is. Well, are you sure? Is is ambiguous. And you can defend in court a variety of meanings. In fact, what I want to do is I took this out of a logic book. I want to demonstrate to you that uh, is is not an equal sign like many people make it out to be. Uh, and if you don't know logic, many times you're not able to read through newspaper articles and discern the truth from the error. But um, this follows the, the logical equation. If A equals B, and if B equals C, then A equals C. Okay? Equal things equal each other, right? <clears throat> now, it, 
the word is can be used in a similar fashion, but not necessarily on every level of comparison. Maybe the is is on just one portion of the level. But listen to this uh, from the logic book. God is love. Love is blind. Ray Charles is blind. Therefore, Ray Charles is God. <laughs> now, if is is an equal sign, that's a valid argument. I mean, we, if the premises are right, we would question the premise that love is blind, right? But you could throw in something else in there. It doesn't have to be love is blind. I just took that out of the logic book. But you can see is can be used in, in different ways in each of, those, each of those sentences. And so what I'm urging you to do is to learn logic and you will not as easily be taken in. Bible says, the simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. That's Proverbs 14, verse 15. Tactic 11 of advertisers and salespeople is to take advantage of how bewildering the choices in life are to some people and to use that complexity to play the good guy, to be, as it were, a consumer advocate to you and bringing to your attention how you've been hoodwinked by the competition. You've been taken in by the competition and you've got to do it in a plausible way by drawing out selective features from the competition's product. Now, this serves several purposes. First of all and foremost, what this does is it makes the salesperson look good, like he's on your side. I'm your consumer advocate. I'm for you. I'm bringing to your attention something that could ruin you, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't do this. The second purpose is it puts the competition in a bad light because it makes them look like they've already taken advantage of you. Now, maybe they haven't, but the way it's presented, it looks like it. Third, it gives the illusion of giving a satisfactory side-by-side -side comparison of two products when in reality it is not objective at all. You've only heard from one person. And uh, that's exactly what Satan does in verse 5. He basically says in verse 5, think about it. Why has God not allowed you to come to this tree? Uh, look at verse 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So Satan is trying to position himself as the good guy who's pointing out, you know, why the competition is doing this and I'm your sales advocate. I've had car, car salesmen do this with me. I've had them do it subtly, uh, be very good at it, and sometimes very crassly uh, do it. You know, I hate to speak bad of the competition, but, and then he proceeds to speak bad of the competition, you know. And actually, he said, I never make it a policy to speak bad of the competition. And then he proceeded to do it. <laughs> but uh, I went to one dealer, and he showed me, he says, well, let me show you a stripped down version, you know, and look at these safety features, double walls and everything, and none of the competition vans have this. And if you were to get into an accident, tremendous safety. They go to the other guy, well, I think we've got those, but hey, the reason why they need to have those safety features is 90% of the vans that roll are Ford. And of course they're going to need something like that. And you wouldn't want a van that rolls, would you? So you go over to the Ford dealer and he says, he laughs and he says, well, of course, 90% of the vans that uh, roll are, are Fords. We've got 90% of the vans on the market out on the roads, you know, so they, they all roll and they go back and forth like this. But um, now I say that this has to be plausible in order for this to work. And what makes Satan's claims in Genesis 3 plausible is the name of the tree. Okay, it's called, after all, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God has been keeping him from that tree. And so it's not a real stretch for Satan to be able to say, why has God been keeping you from this tree? He doesn't want you to have knowledge. Uh, he doesn't want you to know what's good. 
Uh, he wants you to be naive. He doesn't want you to know the difference between good and bad. I mean, it's a very clever tactic that Satan is using here. And I think the way to develop sales resistance is obvious. Uh, you need to know something by doing research, ask questions, find out the reason for the negative statistics. And I hope as we go through these tactics that you will be cautious. You will learn to have uh, caution and uh, be cautious even about your own understanding. Life is much more complex than many people realize. And that's why Proverbs 11 verse 12 says, in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Safety implies danger, right? So you just get one person's opinion, it may lead you to danger. So he says, get, get a variety of things. Life is complex, you're going to get feedback. No one person can know everything there is to know about life. That's why we need the body. That's why we need to be sharpening each other. It also says that in the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom, there is knowledge. So uh, uh, that's my admonition there. Tactic 12 takes advantage of the propensity of humans to impute motives to others. And I think even Christians do this. We try to fight against it, but I think many times we impute motives to other people. And uh, this goes one step beyond the previous tactic. And I think that's exactly what Satan is doing in verse 5. He pretends to know what God's motives are. Well, how in the world is Satan going to know God's motives? Uh, you know, how, do, how in the world is Satan, to, to change the imagery a little bit, how does he know what's going on in the smoke-filled rooms, you know, behind the scenes? This is at the heart of conspiracy books. Uh, and, and we need to ask, okay, if these conspiracies are so all-fired powerful and so all-fired secret as you make them out to be, how come you know so flaming much about them? I mean, all the intimate details that are going on here. Now, I'm not saying there aren't conspiracies. I believe that there are, and Psalm 2 says there always have been and there always will be trying to throw off the bonds of Christ in the political realm. But Psalm 2 also says God's not going to allow those to succeed, and we ought not to be fearful from them. Anyway, I'm rambling, but I think you get the point of where we're going. We need to distinguish gossip from objective evidence. And I think Christians especially are sucked in in this area. We are so naive in taking gossip for evidence. Um, so we need to ask this person who's imputing bad motives to the competition if he worked for the competition. Now, maybe he did. Maybe he does have an inside track. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Maybe he, maybe he does. But more often than not, they're BSing and wanting to cover up their own motives. And uh, whether it's gossip in the church or it's in the sales room, we need to ignore it. We need to nip it in the bud. Don't take a statement as evidence. You need to examine the statement. Secondly, ask for things in writing, things that are concrete enough they could be sued if, if it was slander. Thirdly, uh, realize the ambiguities of language. I've had salespeople, I ask for something in writing, and they give me something in writing that's just as ambiguous as what they've just told me. And I said, no, I want something that gives the actual specifications of this machine, you know? Uh, everything from, from amps to number of pages per minute that it copies. Fourth, make sure that you find the quotations and maybe even ask them. They can maybe sometimes provide it. But when they're quoting the competition, ask them if they've got the whole article. See, find out, you know, if it's taken out of context. We all know how easy it is to take somebody out of context and make them say something they don't intend to say. In fact, I've been 
pro-life rallies. I've been to other places where news media was there. I saw the whole thing. And then that night when it was reported on TV, it's, it's flabbergasting how they can make you say something so different than what you said. And actually, I'm not surprised because when I was in Canada, I took one semester of um, uh, broadcasting. I was planning to go into broadcasting and had some practice as being a, a rock DJ. Can you imagine Phil Kaiser, the rock DJ? <laughs> it just didn't fit my personality because I hated rock uh, at that time. But uh, some Christian rock I, I like now. But um, what was I going to say there? Oh, yeah, they, they trained us in all kinds of areas on, on advertising, on on uh, uh, editing of things. I think my funnest area was in the um, splicing room. And sometimes we just for fun would splice things so that um, what, what you do is you'd splice, but then there would be little catches and things. So you'd have to either add or take out background noise. You'd have to adjust the tones. You'd have to adjust pitch, speed. Uh, there's different ways of mixing. Uh, drawing out specific sounds while leaving the rest of the sounds there. There's marvelous things. This is before computers, you know, made it so easy. And you'd take maybe an hour's worth of this guy's talk, and he may have talked over a period of 10, 15 days, and you took snippets from speeches here, and maybe there was a half-hour speech here, and you, with creative editing, made a brand-new speech this guy had never given before and made him even say things he didn't believe. After going through that course, I became utterly cynical of the news broadcasting network. I don't get my news off the TV. Uh, you can get taken in still through other media, but what I like to do is I like to get magazines that portray different perspectives, not just a reform perspective, but a different. I like to get secular magazines that are uh, pro-Israel and that are pro-Arab. I like to look from different perspectives, and hopefully you can sift through that and, and, and get some of the truth. But don't believe it just because you saw it. Don't believe it. You know, there's conspiracy tapes out there. Uh, for example, I saw one of uh, the killing of John F. Kennedy. And you can see the guy in the car behind him pulling the trigger, the puff of smoke coming out, and John F. Kennedy's head going back. And uh, the claim is it was on TV. Well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But I've also seen other videos that show a completely different thing. You can do incredible things through video editing. So just because you saw it is meaningless. It is absolutely meaningless. We've got to have caution. Okay, that's way off track too. Where are we at time wise? Let's uh, move on to tactic 13. We're gonna end with this one. And as of this week, last week I said there were 20 principles. As of this week, there's 24 principles. As I keep reading and rereading, maybe next week there will be a few more. There's more that just jump out, and I say, wow. I mean, that's exactly the way advertisers use that. So we'll, we'll see how much it comes to by the time we're finished. Tactic 13 is to seek to create discontentment. Satan said, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Now, this is Bill Gothard's uh, fifth point uh, from Genesis. Remember, I mentioned last week, he was the one years ago had given this, gave me the idea uh, for this, um, uh, th this sermon uh, series. And I, I found about half of his 12 points very, very helpful. And I want to comment on this point, uh, his comments in entirety. He said, Satan <clears throat> convinced Eve that she was missing a vital ingredient to a happy and successful life. 
In reality, God had already given her everything that she needed for her happiness, security, and fulfillment. Alluring advertising promotes attitudes of self-rejection, and I'm not sure where he got that. I question that very much. I doubt people have self-rejection. But he says, of self-rejection and discontentment. Now, that's the point there. It's the discontentment that is created that I think is key. He goes on, it focuses on what we do not have, and it encourages instant gratification. Along with the you-owe-it-to-yourself philosophy, there is the encouragement to gratify your wants now and make payments in the future. And I think, I think it's a very good insight there. Uh, what the advertising can do is it can it, it create discontentment. It, it creates a present orientation rather than a future orientation, a consumer orientation rather than a stewardship orientation an orientation toward the creature rather than an orientation toward the creator. In fact, advertising, I mentioned last week, has the unusual ability to make you feel you need something you didn't even know existed before. Now, that does not mean you can't buy it. You know, there are things may come to your attention, you realize, you know, I think my stewardship would be improved so much better if I had that. But we've got to distinguish between needs and desires, what would be helpful and what would just make me feel good. Now, how do we resist this? Uh, number one, I list, um, I list some put-offs. We need to put off anything that would create discontentment with God. As long as idols grip our hearts, we're never going to be able to say, Lord, you can take away everything so long as I have you, I have your presence, so long as it glorifies you, I'm content, Lord. You're never going to be able to say that you're always going to be holding as tight as you can onto the things that are your idols, that are things that are around you. And um, as long, by the way, as you are seeking anything as an end in itself, you're seeking wealth as an end in itself, that's an idol. What we need to see wealth and all the other things as tools to the end of glorifying God in this world. Uh, in fact, this, this book by this millionaire, he was pointing out how so many poor people and so many wealthy people are constantly working for money rather than having money work for them and money working for uh, God's kingdom. It's a different attitude. It's the master if you're working for it. And it, it, it may seem subtle, but it, it may, does make a big difference. Uh, but let me see, give some examples how you can destroy idols and stay away from things that promote discontentment. Don't go window shopping for fun. Okay? So many people, oh, I'll just go out, feel like walking the mall, let's do some uh, window shopping. You're tempting yourself. Don't just blindly browse the internet for fun. Internet can be a dangerous place as well as a very useful place. And when you're getting onto the internet, you need to have a purpose for getting onto the internet. Stay to that purpose and allot yourself a given amount of time and get off when that time is done, even if you haven't found what you're looking for, because the internet can chew up enormous amounts of time, just like other kinds of entertainment can. You say, well, it's not entertainment. You know, it, but I tell you, your curiosity just travels forever. You could spend forever on the internet and never get to the end of it. So you've got to be disciplined in how you look at it. Some people are tempted to materialism by reading catalogs. They just read catalog after catalog, and it feels so good, you know, to think about having that. Or it may be a car magazine or some kind of other magazine that's uh, looking at the things that we would just love to have. And if you can't control your spending habits, don't do that kind of window shopping. I've got relatives. I don't know how many times uh, this has happened, but 
They're going to go out, and you know they're flat broke. Why are you going out to look at such? Oh, we're just window shopping. You know, it's just, it's just for fun. We're just looking. And they come back, they've bought it on credit. It's just amazing how that happens. The same is true of your besetting sins. If you're troubled by pornography, well, don't be, don't be going to the areas that are going to be feeding that temptation. Don't stand right under the tree of the knowledge of good and evil like Eve was doing and say, well, I'm just admiring God's creation, you know. Uh, I'm just curious about what this tree looks like. I'm window shopping. That's what Eve was doing, you know, window shopping under the tree there. What happens is you become a prey to Satan, and we're going to become far greater prey than Eve was because, again, he has far more things in us, far more weaknesses that he can appeal to. That's what happened to David. He was sitting under the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just admiring God's beauty as he looked at Bathsheba, you know, the second and the third time. And you know the excuses that people take. Don't have, you know, that wish list. list. You'll get stung. So you have to destroy, you have to kill systematically by putting off these things that create discontentment. And then you need to learn the put-ons, finding total contentment and satisfaction in God. We need to be able to learn to say with Job, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And to say with Paul, I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. In other words, the world did not grip him. He didn't care. Uh, Obviously, he wanted to have more money for stewardship, if that's what the Lord wanted. But for him, money or lack of money was not the issue as it was. What, What did God want and if paul could learn this kind of contentment you can learn it as well not to be gripped uh, by the world now i can't give you all of the things that help you to learn this i'm just going to give you a couple of key ones learn to fast and pray learn to fast and pray fasting uh, is something that kills the hold that the world has upon your flesh it's mortifying your flesh so fast and pray tithe and give Uh, tithing and giving can kill that covetousness within as god prompts you uh to to give give generously god says he will pour back more into your life than you have but not if you're giving for the sake of getting because again you're holding on to the money your attitude is not right so fast and pray tithe and give uh, learning to gain a trust and do everything you can to transfer your affections to god and your treasures in heaven now, we're going to be singing an old Lutheran hymn that Jeff introduced me to uh, this, uh, th- this past week. And basically what this hymn says is, I-, I want the world to be so unimportant to me that Jesus is my all in all. What is the world to me? Now, you might think that goes contrary to the command of Scripture to conquer the world. It does not. In fact, it's the prerequisite to being able to conquer the world. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so I want us to sing this hymn as um, stewards of the Lord, committing ourselves to him and saying, Lord, I want all of those tentacles that the world is holding on to me to be cut off. I want to not be pursuing after money as an end in itself, but I want to be building the assets of my family to many generations because I believe these assets will better serve you. Now, if I will better serve you by death, Lord, take my life. If I will better serve you by losing all my money, Lord, take my money. 
but I want to serve you. And at this point, I'm seeking to build my assets. I'm seeking to build a house and different things. But Lord, they're tools to the end of serving you. That's the attitude that we need to have. And just pray that the world would not grip us. So let's go ahead. I'm going to pray. Let's stand and uh, we'll sing this song together.